and welcome to Making It to the Other Side, a podcast by Chartered Accountants Australia and New Zealand, with me, your host, Mike O'Leary. In this podcast, we're talking to chartered accountants who are making a difference every day in helping businesses navigate the financial implications of crises and plan for the future. I'm sure many of our listeners are avid skiers and enjoy hitting the slopes during snow season. There's nothing better than skiing all day under clear blue skies on fresh snow. If you're in New Zealand and were lucky enough to enjoy a few days on Coronet Peak, the Remarkables or Mount Hutt this winter, you might have noticed a few significant differences. And that's because, like most other industries, the tourism industry was of course hugely affected by the outbreak of COVID-19 this year. Our guest on the podcast today is someone who can give us a unique insight into just how the pandemic impacted on the snow season in New Zealand. Paul Anderson is a Chartered Accountant and Chief Executive Officer at New Zealand Ski. He will talk us through how things unfolded ahead of what was going to be another record-breaking season. They reacted quickly and managed to continue to operate, albeit under some very different circumstances. So let's go to my conversation with Paul. Paul, thanks for joining us today. Kia ora, Mike. Hey, can you tell us a bit about the journey you've taken to become the Chief Executive of New Zealand Ski? Yeah, it's um, it's been a bit of a a bit of an unusual journey in many respects. I've I've been through a, a number of sectors and um, working in both the public and private sector. Started my life off as a policy analyst at New Zealand Treasury in Wellington. Um, straight out of a master's degree in accountancy at the University of Canterbury. Um, too long ago for me to remember the exact dates, but spent four years there. Uh, did the usual Kiwi OE up to London, worked in banking up there for a couple of years and then came back and actually went to work for my um, former boss who had been at Treasury, who is now at Telecom and spent a good stint there in a variety of corporate finance and business finance roles. Then I took a sideways shift in Telecom and, and chose to take on an operational role, which was just a fantastic way to broaden myself out of it. And then I took my first uh, general manager role as uh, general manager corporate services for Christchurch City Council, which was effectively CFO uh, with property, procurement and IT thrown in um, for good measure. Did that through the earthquakes, um, negotiated the cost sharing agreement with the Crown and thought that was a good time to leave. And um, at the time, this role in Queenstown had been advertised it, was, it wasn't a role I thought I was well experienced for, but uh, by fortune, the board was looking for someone who was commercial and still relatively young um, because we've got a, a pretty young workforce. So they needed someone that could connect with a young workforce. And um, we've got a fabulous operational team. So the fact that I was a bit green in terms of the ski industry wasn't a huge impediment. Um, it helped that I have got a passion for ski and I've done that all my life. So um yeah, I was lucky enough to join this family-run business, family-owned business, seven years ago, and I've been here for, for that time, which has been fabulous to be part of this industry. And what attracted you personally to that change in role? Um, I was really looking for my first CEO role. You know, that was I, I'd been in uh, Christchurch City Council for around about six years. While I was at Christchurch City Council, it was kind of like doing three jobs. You know, the first couple of years was growing into the role. Um, then with the earthquakes coming along, it became much more about a response to the earthquakes. And um, I loved the challenge and the, um, the mental stimulation that you get in the public sector. 
um, or in local government, but I, I did want to return to the private sector. Um, so with this role coming up, I was keen to, to give that a go, put my hand up, and really the thing I think that helped me, apart from my um, my commercial and financial background, was the fact that I, I, I connected quite well with the family who are the owners of NZ Ski um, and got on very well with them um, in, a, you know, in, in just one interview. Sir John Davies, who's the owner, um, is a really intuitive businessman and um, he, he took a punt and the rest is history. Paul, can you tell us at a macro level, what was the New Zealand 2020 ski season looking like in, say, January of this year? Yeah, look, we've been growing the industry uh, for the last five to seven years, and it's really been on the back of a really good, strong domestic base with our local visitors and then growth out of the North Island. But for the growth part, it's been a lot about Australia and that increasing connectivity to East Coast Australia, Um, the ease at which they can now fly into Queenstown, Queenstown as a, as a resort destination has a lot of what they've got to offer. And we've engineered our mountains, our resorts um, in Queenstown being Coronet Peak and the Remarkables around that market. Um, so we've been growing in high single digits for a good seven years. Um, and we reached 700,000 visitors last year, which was an all-time record. Uh, so this year we were, we were just looking forward to the same, you know, carrying on growing. Uh, we've been investing strongly in increasing our capacity over the years. So uh, we, we were shaping up for a, for a great season. And what was your first indication that something was going wrong? We're, we're part of a, a broader business. So Trojan Holdings, which is our parent company, also owns uh, 40% of Bungie and the Hermitage guided walks on the Milford and Rootburn tracks. That's the tourism part of their business. So we were pretty wired into the challenges um, coming out of initially the Chinese, the downturn in Chinese um, visitors. So we had taken some actions um, as far back as December, January to start to trim some of our investment plans. And then come March, that was when things really started to get serious. Um, it was very clear that the, the Chinese weren't going to come. Then as we got into lockdowns, that we were going to have closed borders for some time. And we had to go through the very real possibility that we weren't going to be able to operate. Um, but we were determined to operate um, and to do everything to show that we could operate safely. What were the first big decisions, the tough ones you had to make? It was really whether we could operate or not. We had to go through a lot of business planning. My, um, my finance manager and his team were working overtime on financial models and, and just making sure we understood what it looked like not to operate versus only operating a little bit. Obviously, we knew our businesses was, was going to be smaller. So if we could operate, we knew we, were, we weren't going to have that 40% of our visitation that comes from the Australian market. Um, so we had to make some tough decisions around our permanent headcount um, and just right-size our business for not just this year, but we could see that beyond this year, it would take a while to start to grow again. So we had to make some tough decisions on um, reducing the size of that workforce initially. Then we had to make some um, hard decision, decisions around how we would operate this year. Um, as I said, our businesses are built around um, a capacity that includes 40% visitation from, from Australia. So 
take that away and it became apparent to us that we actually didn't need to run both of our ski resorts for seven days a week all season and that we would have enough capacity with just one resort on weekdays um, and both resorts during the weekend. So they were kind of some of the tougher tougher decisions. There were there were other things we had to look at also um, our product set to make sure that it was that it was right for the domestic market, um, and of course pricing to make sure we're, we're attracting Kiwis and uh, appealing to hopefully a new market. Did you have to make some really difficult decisions about staff? Yeah, I, I think the, the toughest decisions for us were those um, were, the, were those initial staff that we had to offer redundancy to. In some respects, it was made easier because we could offer them some seasonal roles. Um, so to put it in perspective, in, in a normal year, NZ Ski, we have 70 permanent staff and 1,250 seasonal staff. Um, so we really scale up massively for that winter season. This year, at our peak, we employed 698, so significantly less than what we usually operate. But the people that we didn't employ this year, they weren't here, so they couldn't work for us anyway. So they're people like snow sports instructors and technical roles who couldn't come in from overseas to uh, to work in New Zealand anyway. Besides the financial measures, you had to put in place some protocols around um, distancing, hygiene across the board. Yeah, it was one of the first uh, first decisions we made, actually. Just So just going back to your previous question, in April, I reached out to a couple of the other large operators in New Zealand and said to them, you know, just suggested that we work together to develop some industry protocols so we could then go to government and prove that we were responsible and able to operate safely. Um, the three biggest ski operators in the country um, have, have about 85% of the market and to their credit, the smaller operators trusted us to develop those protocols for the whole industry. So that worked exceptionally well. You know, when you're when you're fighting for your survival, collaboration was actually a really great tool. Uh, once we got into the season, of course, we could go back to competing on product and price like we usually do. Um, but to get the operational protocols sorted and really clear was a great way to start. And even, at, even in, in the season, we were still comparing notes about how those protocols were being implemented so we could just fine-tune them. You know, things like, um, you know, wearing masks on transport or lifts and, and how we were managing the lift queues and how we were moving people through our base building facilities and so on. Being able to compare with other people in the industry was, uh, was really helpful. Did those protocols continue to develop over the season as you refined and collaborated with the other ski providers? Yeah, they did. Um, you know, we, we had developed the protocols for Level 2 operations and just days before we started, uh, we got to Level 1 in the country. So the Level 2 protocols got put on the shelf um, and we we launched into the season all guns blazing. We could remove the restrictions um, we still, under Level 1, had um, increased cleaning protocols and staff PPE available. But then, of course, when Auckland went into Level 3 and the rest of the country went into Level 2, we had to, and we were given less than 24 hours notice of that, um, like, like all businesses. So we had to pull those protocols back out, uh, reread them. I'd, I'd just about forgotten what we'd prepared. And um, we actually closed our resorts for a day 
to give us a chance to reconfigure certain areas like food and beverage or lift operations to make sure we could responsibly manage or set up an environment for our customers to physically distance um, and to keep our staff safe as well, of course. Now, some of those decisions you had to make within hours, did you set up a an emergency management committee or a crisis committee within your management team? It was my senior leadership team. So I think um, when we when the Prime Minister announced it, it was, I think, it might have been 8 or 8.30. Um, the, first, the first call I made was um, to my closest competitor um, over in Wanaka at Kadrona. Um, and we kind of compared notes about what we were thinking. Then I think it was about 10 p.m. I uh, pulled together a video conference of my senior team um, to agree how we were going to operate the next day. Um, the, the first important decision was that we were going to close the next day. We make a decision every morning at about 6 a.m. about whether we're going to open and close, um, send out the ski report, and we have thousands of people turn up. So we had to make a decision really quickly about our operating parameters. And, of course, I had to let my board know that too because <laughs> they, they, they were pretty interested in what was going on. Um, so we made that call. Uh, we closed the resorts to give us a chance to um, – review the protocols, decide what we needed to do, and train staff all within that 24-hour period um, to be ready to go. I think it was a Thursday morning when we when we reopened. Yeah, I'm really interested in the amount of support you got from your leadership team and particularly from your board. Uh, yeah, look, it was, um, it was amazing. It, and, and I wouldn't just single out my leadership team either. The um, management and staff at all levels just rose to the challenge. I think as leaders, what we needed to do was make some fast decisions and create a level of certainty where really there was none and then empower the staff to get on and do their things. Um, There's no way we could get out there and and tell the lift operators how they needed to do their job safely. We needed to set those um, principles around contact tracing, physical distancing and cleaning and hygiene. Um, and make sure they understood those principles and then provide some guidance on how we thought things could operate, um, but then give them the the power to to make changes to ensure things were operating safely and uh, well from a customer perspective. Did you have to do a lot more communication across the board in the organisation to ensure that happened? Yeah, I mean, that day transition was really challenging from a communications perspective because we just really didn't have the time. It's more crisis management and you tend to be far more autocratic than you usually would be. When there's a bit more time, you can take that time, arrive at a more consensus level of decision making and um, allow those decisions to be communicated in a far more collaborative way. But because because of the speed of the decision, it really had to be, this is how we're doing it. Um, let's get on with it and fine tune it as we go. Communications to customers was really critical as well. Um, so making sure all our social channels were giving good and consistent communication through to our customers about what they what they should expect when they arrived on resort, because it did look different. The main thing was um, being patient and being kind to each other, you know, just reiterating the government's guidance, really. And on the whole, you know, 99% of the people were amazing. I get around and catch up with all my seasonal management teams um, during the year. You could see their mood 
and their stress levels as we're moving in and out of COVID levels and so on. The level of staff anxiety was really high, particularly when we were going into level two um, and staff were trying to work out whether they were there to create the environment or enforce the environment, but also having to deal with a handful of customers who could become unreasonable. And we talked a lot about um, the fact that, you know, different people deal with stress in different ways and made sure we were available and we provided support where staff had been exposed to that. Um, But most of all, that as leaders, we were there to support them whenever it did happen. And reflecting now, we're through one part of it. Do you have a a different workforce or a different attitude amongst your workforce? Yeah, you know, I, I think we do. Um, the thing that I've been setting an expectation around is that the way we've changed and become more productive, we need to maintain that because I'm not planning for next year for us to have Australians here. If we do, that's fantastic. But um, I think we need to prepare for the worst and plan for the best or <laughs> um, or hope for the best. Um, so... We, we achieved levels of productivity that we didn't think was possible simply because we had to. We had uh, staff from all departments working in all departments. And, you know, across a, a ski resort, you've got multiple areas of operations where quite often they tend to run as silos. But this year, you know, one of our company values is um, making sure you lend a hand wherever you can. So, you know, if there's a stairway to be cleared of snow, it doesn't matter who you are, you just do it. And this year, more than ever, that was critical for making sure we operated. Um, you know, personally, I, I, I don't know how many departments I worked in, um, roads, lifts, rentals, food and beverage, wherever I could help. You know, you'd see staff under pressure and you'd just roll up your sleeves and get into it. It was, um, it was, it, it was fabulous. Mike here again. If you're enjoying this episode of Making It to the Other Side, then why not check out some of our other stories? Listen to my conversations with CAs playing an absolutely crucial role in helping businesses recover from crises. You can subscribe and download Making It to the Other Side from your favourite podcast app. You must have had some fairly large skill shortages with the, the lack of international workers coming in. Is that how you filled those gaps as well? No, because some of those jobs are, are too highly skilled to be able to to be able to fill with a um, with a CEO who who's not trained to do too much apart from being a CEO. The jobs where we became more productive were really those lower skilled jobs where you could move people between them or train them very quickly. So for example, rentals, um, I remember going in there one morning and, and they were under pressure and I I said to um, a young woman who was fitting people into boots, I said, give me 30 seconds on how you do it and just give me a job. And there I was for two hours just trying to break the back of a queue and, um, and help people through that process. The biggest skill shortage was snow sports instructors. We usually employ a good 500 snow sports instructors, of which 400 come from overseas. So they weren't here. Initially, we thought we weren't going to need many of them because that Australian market wasn't coming. But the new New Zealand market that turned up actually turned out to be a little bit more similar to overseas tourists in that they wanted to spend more money, 
they wanted snow sports instruction and so on. So we were really short in that area. Um, there are a few other skilled roles like patrol, snowmaking, grooming, um, to name a few that we were short on. Um, on the whole, I don't think customers noticed some of them. What they wouldn't have seen is how hard the staff we did have worked to make up for those shortfalls. But, you know, in some instances, we may not have had enough groomer drivers to groom quite as much terrain as we usually would or to build the terrain park jumps as fast as we normally would. So we had to make some sacrifices on uh, service levels. Now, you've talked about the increase in local New Zealand skiers. Did you work with the other ski providers for that or any tourism New Zealand or any government agencies? We, we benefited before the season from... Um, some unbelievably good PR and publicity through the mainstream media. I think the ski industry really became a beacon of hope and the media were genuinely trying to help and um, offer some hope for people. And, and it was a great story because, you know, as you know, coming out of lockdown, what all of us wanted was just get back to doing the things we love and being able to socialise in those kind of environments with people we love. That was just terrific and it was a great help from um, the media to get that message out there. Um, Tourism New Zealand and local regional tourism officers also worked really hard and we're really grateful for their support to to move their normal focus away from, for example, Australian or international promotions to more domestic. Um, And that really helped us a lot. And um, I think a lot of that work will help us again next year uh, where people... I'm hoping we'll plan for holidays, not necessarily just in school holidays, but also through that August-September period where we usually have good Australian visitation. Um, But this year, the locals got to enjoy the mountains by themselves. And that local demand, was it regular or was it lumpy? It was very lumpy. And, you know, not surprisingly, because we've all got jobs, we're we're all working hard. um, So not everyone can go and ski during the week. We're used to that at, at Mount Hutt, our resort just outside Christchurch, because that usually gets a more local market. So we knew what that looks like. Um, in short, very busy school holidays and very busy weekends. And if you can afford to take a day off work during the week, you get up there and you have an absolute ball. Um, so that that was, I, I refer to it as a very peaky demand profile, and, and it means that your average skiers per day go down. And how did you respond to this peaky demand day by day? It's mainly through through rostering. You know, we, we, we had to be um, far more nimble with our rostering and, and be able to scale up and scale down. But I mentioned before also productivity and cross-utilisation, encouraging staff to move between departments. So, for example, between, say, 7 and 9 o'clock, our roads are really busy. So we've got a full roads crew out there clearing the road, preparing the road, directing traffic into car parks. Of course, people get up there, then they flow into guest services, through rentals, out into lessons. And we, we encourage departmental heads to, to move their staff through those other areas wherever they could help. And then, of course, at lunchtime, they go into food and beverage. So there's tables to be cleared and so on. Otherwise, incredibly grateful for the way our seasonal management staff and uh, all other staff rose to that challenge to make sure all their staff were helping wherever they could. So forecasting skiers on the ski field is really difficult. How about forecasting revenue? (laughs) Um, Much less. That wasn't so difficult. 
Yeah, look, we, we, we are well down. That positive PR was really helpful pre-season. It also told a story of a very busy school holidays, which I think the, the powers that be in Wellington made it look like the, the ski industry was, was doing incredibly well. Um, the reality is that we're probably about a third down on visitors for the full year and um, more than 40% down on revenue because, um, of course, the New Zealanders on the whole don't spend as much as uh, people from overseas. Um, so, yeah, we, we're, look, we're here and uh, we, we've done far, far better than we thought we were going to do and we're very grateful for that. But it's the, the hard thing is the the fixed costs associated with our business and our investment and in infrastructure relies on a certain scale of visitors and it's going to take us a while to rebuild that scale. Paul, tell us, are there some things you did during um, lockdown and, and opening the ski field that you're going to continue with that were um, a, a huge success? Yeah, I think that, you know, that idea around productivity and, and making sure people understand that to go and work in another department, you don't need to know 100% of what the specialists in that department know. And that's obviously for roles that aren't safety sensitive, but being able to go on and help um, is, a, is a huge part of that. So we often talk as a country about productivity and how generally we, we don't have the greatest productivity. I think that's probably been our biggest increase in productivity is just the, the awareness of staff about the ability to move between departments and help out. So that, that agility you'll keep going for future seasons? Yeah, absolutely we will. You know, when when things are growing, um, it's, it's far easier to add more resource in. Um, and in some respects, what the, the downside of that is, is it, is it forms silos within your organisation. So keeping a bit leaner and encouraging people to move around is, um, you know, that, that's that's going to drive that productivity harder. Um, and I think it's also far more fulfilling for the staff to uh, to get much more appreciation outside just a certain department. Um, there are other things we did as well. We took the opportunity to move to um, almost 100% cashless operations. So cash and cash handling is... Um, uh, you know, has costs associated with it and uh, and security um, issues that are associated with it. So we took the opportunity to say, well, actually, cash is pretty filthy. Um, we'd rather not see too much of it. And we knew from our stats that not that many people use it. There's enough to still accept it. And we've got an IT system or a um, resort management system that allows people to load cash onto their um, ski cards so they can use that to pay for snow sports lessons or food and beverage all over the resort. Uh, so we took that opportunity and that's definitely something I would like to uh, to keep going. And Paul, have you taken the time to look to next season? Yep, we're, um, we're in the middle of our planning process at the moment actually, so yeah, for me, next season looks a lot like this season. I'm, I'm hoping we get a few more Kiwis attracted to the ski industry for ski holidays. And I think we will because, on the whole, the feedback we had um, through our customer surveys was, was incredibly positive. And uh, people, I think, will go back to their places of residence and tell their mates who 
might have had um, less rewarding holidays that uh, a, a holiday in Methven or Queenstown is fantastic. They got to ski the whole time and bluebird days and the snow was great and, and there's everything to offer here. Well, we talk about making it to the other side. Do you see another side or do you see this current situation continuing for a while? Yeah, no, I, I definitely see another side, um, but it is going to take some time to get back there. Um, I know, you know as an industry, we're keen to maintain our capacity because when we get the borders reopened, um, it is going to be busy again. And we don't want to make short-term decisions that then are difficult to recover from. But in the short term, I think our challenge is going to be around labour. Labour shortages are real. And this is something that the powers that be in Wellington have got a very macro understanding of. We operate in a reality of regional skill shortages and um, a heavy reliance on people who are prepared to work seasonally. And unless you're a working holiday maker, you're generally not keen to work seasonally. So labour is going to be an issue both on the skills side and the, the number of people we need. The other immediate challenge we've got is while with our cash flows um, less than uh, desirable, we have to curtail our investment plans. But at the same time, we need to be ready for when the tap gets turned back on with particularly those trans-Tasman tourists. So that's an interesting balance to strike. But I I definitely see another side. If we get a trans-Tasman bubble next year, you know, we will be, there are going to be 6 million Australians who usually travel the world who may only be able to come to New Zealand. So there's some there's some massive upside risks for us to plan for. Paul, you've talked a lot about resilience, and I'm interested in your own views about your own personal resilience. What have you discovered about yourself in this process? There's probably a couple of observations. One is during the planning period when we were all in lockdown at home and, you know, it was, it was endless Zoom and Teams video conferences, I found that my leadership style changed and there was far more time spent giving direction and creating clarity. And I think in times of crisis, that's what's needed of leaders, that um, the, the, the time that you usually spent building consensus isn't available, but actually that your team accepts that and wants to go with it. And we actually talked about that as we went into the season. I said, look, you know, thanks for tolerating a far more directive style now I want to revert back to a more consensus-driven approach and um, and they, they realised that they had. The other thing was probably it made me reflect on why I kind of jumped into that, into that uh, more directive style so quickly. And I think for me it was my experience with dealing with Christchurch earthquakes or the Canterbury earthquakes when I was uh, GM Corporate Services at Christchurch City Council. I think that made me... I guess except, for, excuse my friends, but that, but that shit does happen, and um, it's at those times that you know leaders really need to stand up. That's when you, your leadership is more important. And I said to staff all the way through that, you know, they will be more resilient as as a consequence of having to deal with these tough times because I, I really believe that um, is what's helped me through this one. Paul, can I thank you for your insights into your industry, your company, your staff and yourself? Uh, kia ora, Mike. Thank you very much. It's a, it's a pleasure to share and uh, I, I just hope people uh, get something out of that.
you enjoyed my conversation with Paul as much as I did. It was inspiring to hear how an unprecedented situation like COVID-19 actually led to positive change for New Zealand Ski. It united their people at all levels of the organisation and motivated them to come together and lend a hand wherever they could. They rose to the challenge and it's made them more productive and resilient than ever. I don't know about you, but I'm definitely planning a trip to the snow next season. Thank you for joining me on Making It to the Other Side. Until next time.